This is an ABC podcast. What were you seeing that freaked you out? There's a just a, a bizarre a subculture online of talking about you know only twenty percent of men are getting eighty percent of women, and mm. that that there's women have these bizarre long lists of things that they must have in a man, and if you don't stack up to that, then they're not interested in you, and it just doesn't seem to correlate at all with the world that I see around me. This is someone we're calling Hugh. He's a 40-something-year-old dad from WA. Construction supervisor, work up in the mines in the Pilbara. And he and his wife have two teenagers, a boy and a girl. Older son, Ed. A few years ago, he started noticing a slight shift in his son. Nothing super worrying, but curious nonetheless. We're quite a political family. We talk about politics a great deal. Um, He was very keen on following Donald Trump, his exploits. And I think it was just every so often things dropping into his conversation, the way that he was framing things reminded me of some of the the more extreme views that you hear in corners of the internet. It seemed unlike him. I don't know if it was a a bitterness that that came through that just made me think, where where are these thoughts coming from? Where are these ideas coming from? Hugh decided to do a little experiment. He started punching in some search terms into Facebook and YouTube, terms he knew his son would be searching. Stuff to do with you know, his passions for cricket and for music and listening to different, different heavy metal bands. Pretty innocuous stuff overall, but we all know how algorithms work at this point. And Hugh was keen to see where these terms would lead. It quite quickly identifies you as a young man. The, the stuff that starts popping up on the feeds there was a lot of negativity in it, a lot of sort of red pill things started popping up and it was also a concern when you see things like Andrew Tate, etc., pop up in feeds. Andrew Tate, if you haven't heard of him, is a self-proclaimed misogynist online influencer who's now been arrested on charges of rape and trafficking since we started putting the show together. Um, so I started, out of curiosity as much as anything else, to listen to some of those discussions and some of those panel groups. And as far as they feed into masculinity, uh, the notion of someone like Tate saying he's got 15 girls on the go or mm. he's, he's got millions of dollars and he can do whatever he wants, it's, it's just the most horrible example for someone to think is, is the right way to be. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Hugh's search term experiment had landed him in some of the most toxic corners of the internet. I think it's a really key place where some young men are being radicalised, not into terrorism or violent extremism, but into kind of sexist extremism. But this episode isn't just about the internet's role in perpetuating misogyny or toxic masculinity. That's been covered extensively. We're going to take a step back and find out what even appeals about some of these beliefs and behaviours in the first place. I guess the part of this that I always just found endlessly confusing is that, you know, these boys would have potentially girlfriends, they'd have sisters, they'd have mothers, they'd have grandmothers, they'd have women in their lives that surely they care about to some degree and would want to see be happy and safe and okay. Like, I I just don't understand how you get to the point of dismissing the value and worth and, you know, dignity of, like, women. Yeah, look, it is is extraordinary. And I I think you're absolutely right. And how do you address the problem when the very term toxic masculinity has become contested? The term is far too often misheard as saying that there's something fundamentally toxic about being a man, that all men are toxic. Today, the temptations and triggers of the more toxic parts of masculinity. 
you think the term toxic masculinity comes from? Because I'll tell you my first guess. I thought it was probably coined in feminist circles, whether in academia or the feminist blogs of the mid-2000s. It turns out the term's origins are way more surprising. The term actually emerged in the 1980s, and it emerged within the mythopoetic men's movement. The mythopoetic men's movement? Definitely not the answer I was predicting. So, so the mythopoetic movement is kind of one strand of the men's movement. And the men's movement is, you know, a kind of set of groups and networks and activities that have been around primarily in Western countries really since the 1970s or so that accompanied second wave feminism. This is Michael Flood. He's a professor in the School of Justice at Queensland University of Technology, and he researches gender, masculinity and violence prevention. He says there were four strains of the men's movement that emerged in the 70s. There was a pro-feminist stream, so a kind of men acting in support of feminism as pro-feminist men. There was a men's liberation stream, which really was probably 80 or 90 percent of the men's movement and still is, focused on men's growth and men's healing. Then a mythopoetic strand that was similar to that men's liberation strand, but had a more kind of Jungian psychoanalytic and kind of spiritual orientation, borrowed from Indigenous culture, notions of rites of passage and so on. And then up the other end is a kind of anti-feminist or men's rights um, stream focused on you know, seeing men as victims and pushing back the gains of feminism. So yes, there's quite a diversity mm. there and you can still see that in the contemporary grassroots men's movement. But the mythopoetic movement, which Michael says would send men off into the bush in search of themselves, and which focused on growth and healing through stories. These kind of age-old myths about types of men, the king, the warrior, the lover, and so on. This is where the language of toxic masculinity emerged. It was the thing they were trying to free men from. The kind of emotional and spiritual constricting of men. The term then became more popular in wider self-help circles in the 1990s. It was used a little bit in work on men's mental health and so on, but it really only emerged in media discussion and in feminist commentary um, only in 2015 or so. Oh, wow. Really recent. It, exactly. Yeah, look, uh, so, I mean, now, you know, now it's everywhere and it's become a kind of shorthand for various kinds of rigid, sexist or patriarchal or unhealthy ways of being among men, but it's a very recent term. There is so much bundled up in these terms masculinity and toxic masculinity. First of all, it's important to point out that masculinity isn't just one thing. The term masculinity is a very open-ended term and refers to whatever set of social expectations there are about being a man in a particular country or culture. Although Michael has some concerns about the term toxic masculinity, here's how he describes the broad definition. It represents the insight that there is one version of masculinity, one set of expectations about being a man that does harm, that is limiting or harmful for men themselves, and that feeds into the harms that some men, a minority of men, perpetrate among women and among other men. But the reason he's ambivalent about the term is because it comes with the connotation that all masculinity is somehow toxic. So I think there's a really fundamental insight in the term that I want to popularise, that I want men in general, the community, the government to take up. At the same time, the term is far too often misheard, particularly by men, 
as saying that there's something fundamentally toxic about being a man, that all men are toxic. Now, that's not what the term means. But if men, if that's what men hear when they hear the phrase, well, that's useless because that just means men shut down, men feel attacked, men feel blamed, and some men already feel that. And that kind of shuts down precisely the conversations we want to have with men and boys about the expectations they face about being a man and what's good or bad about them. One of the reasons for this confusion is because toxic masculinity has overlap with many traditional, stereotypical, patriarchal versions of masculinity, which were dominant until recent times. And those versions were often harmful to men and others around them. For the purposes of this show, though, we're going to stick to the term toxic masculinity, so it's as clear as possible what we're talking about. One subset of beliefs and behaviours. But the sense of being under attack, being blamed, is something that worries Hugh, the dad from WA we heard at the top of the show. He worries about the defensiveness it might inspire in people like his son. Toxic masculinity is a a phrase that's thrown around a lot, and there are certainly toxic elements. I went to, I grew up, I went to an all-boys school, and homophobia was the, just the way things were. Even what the teachers would say, by today's standards, they'd be sacked on the spot, I think. There's definitely a truth in parts of groups of men getting together and rapidly sinking to the lowest common denominator. But that being said, it's when rowdy blokes getting together and just having a laugh and having a good time is then viewed in the same light. Um, And anything that is uh, assertive or anything that is even violent, like focused violence, kickboxing as an example, is, is that a toxic thing to do, is playing full contact sports? I, I think it's fantastic. You know, I grew up playing rugby, loved it. Do you think, though, there is that confusion where people lump all those behaviours in, in the one category? Like, I, I th- Yeah, I think they do. I think that um, if you look at a, a group of rowdy men carrying on, I think people see that as threatening because they're often associated with NRL brawls and sexual assaults Mm. and that sort of horrible stuff. But just the bravado of young men, I think, is something that's important to embrace, to give them a space to be um, exuberant and full of life and hurl themselves around and without being domineering or or abusive. I think a lot lot of what young men see is negative press uh, about men in general, particularly, you know, being called to account for the horrendous behaviours of the past, whether that's Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby or choose whichever you wish. There is a lot of bad news out there about the previous activities of men and there is certainly a lot of portrayal of, you see in the movies, evil men doing evil things. And I don't know how that translates into a healthy, how we put across a healthy view of masculinity. So there's a sense of not wanting to throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, when we're talking about what counts as toxic masculinity. But I want to talk about some of the really real risks involved with toxic masculinity and the impact it can have on actual behaviour. Can you talk about that? Like, is there is there a clear line between holding toxic views about masculinity and violence? Look, a, a, a very clear line. So let's, in fact, start with the forms of harm that men themselves suffer. So there's research in Australia, for example, using something called the man box. And the man box is a set of 17 statements, very stereotypical statements about being a man, about being tough, about avoiding um, stereotypical feminine qualities, about being in control, being dominant in relationships, avoiding gay men, and so on. 
And men who agree more strongly with those statements show poorer health themselves. They're more likely to have not asked for help when they were feeling depressed. They're more likely to have felt suicidal in the last two months. They're more likely to have taken risks driving or with drugs and alcohol and so on. And that research is similar to literally hundreds of studies finding that there are strong associations between men's conformity to stereotypical masculinity and their own poor health. But there are also associations between conformity and doing harm to others. Mm. So again, the, the Australian Manbox research showed that young men, this was young men 18 to um, 30, young men 18 to 30 who agreed with those Manbox norms were more likely than other young men to have sexually harassed a woman, for example, mm. more likely to have bullied other men. And again, there's a wealth of evidence from other research that conformity to traditional patriarchal norms goes along with higher levels of using domestic violence, using sexual violence. And in fact, the research on sexual violence, for example, shows that a key predictor is what the research calls hostile masculinity. And hostile masculinity it involves seeing women as less than men. It involves a sense of distrust or suspicion towards women, that women don't tell the truth, that women are manipulative mm. and so on. And it also involves sexual objectification, seeing women and girls only as sexual objects. And it's kind of obvious how those attitudes then play out in perpetrating sexual violence. Now, mm. most men don't use violence. Most men don't use violence against women and girls. But the minority of men who do, one key predictor of their use of violence is having those kinds of hostile masculine attitudes. How do these toxic attitudes and beliefs emerge and develop? And why are they so similar when we're talking about the toxic end of masculinity in cultures across the world? Like there seems to be a sort of uniformity in this kind of thing. Look, there's some degree of uniformity. Certainly the research on men's attitudes towards gender roles around the world does show both similarity and difference. So, mm -hmm. you know, there are common norms of that to be a man is to be tough, to be in control, to not be nurturant, to not be gay and so on. But there are some differences. So, for example, norms of violence, norms of physical aggression are much stronger in some countries than others. Norms that men should be kind of absent and authoritarian fathers rather than changing nappies and cuddling babies, they really differ. There's been real shifts in countries such as Australia in our images and expectations of fatherhood. And even, even norms of homophobia, for example, norms of discrimination and hostility towards gay men and bisexual men and so on, mm. they also differ country by country. In terms of the Australian flavour or strand of toxic masculinity, Professor Michael Flood says the Manbox survey shows most men, at least of the thousand who were surveyed, do not endorse using violence as a way to gain control. But a troubling minority do. About 20% of young men agree that men should use violence to get respect. 27% agree that men should have the final say in relationships. 37%, mm. so over a third, agree that men should know where their partners are at all times. So these are minorities, but these are significant minorities. Yeah. You know, one, one quarter or one third of young men agreeing with some fairly troubling notions. And Michael says we don't really have good longitudinal data to show us how these attitudes have changed over the decades, whether they're waxing or waning. But 
there are bits and pieces of data that give us some sense of that. And they certainly show that it's not true that younger men have consistently better attitudes towards gender and gender inequalities than older men. Right. So, for example, you know, some research has compared different cohorts of men. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't speak precisely about it. But what I do recall from that is that, for example, young men in their late 20s and early 30s, in some ways, were more conservative than men in their um, late 30s, 40s and so on. Not kind of religiously conservative, but more that kind of women lie, women are sexual objects, a pretty kind of hostile, Mm. toxic and sexist view. And, you know, one thesis about this is that at least some young men, and of course this isn't all young men, this is the kind of (laughs) higher (laughs) levels of support, exactly, but, you know, higher levels of support among young men than among, say, men in their 30s and 40s. And one guess as to what's going on here is that this represents a kind of sexist radicalisation online. Mm. So, for example, some some young men go online wanting to know, how do you pick up girls? Or how do you, you know, how do you have sex and so on? But unfortunately, some of the materials those young men find recruits them into the most kind of sleazy, toxic and coercive ideas possible about how to, you know, how to strike up a conversation or how to have a relationship. And I'm thinking of kind of pickup artist culture and, and of other really kind of hostile and sexist cultures. Can you explain a bit more in terms of what draws boys and men to to these corners of the internet, apart from the algorithm shuffling them along, but like actually what is appealing about, you know, like a figure like Andrew Tate, the former kickboxer turned misogynist influencer? Why, yeah, t- why is t- the message turns appealing? rape preacher. Um, mm. so, look, I think people like Andrew Tate and, and some other things like that are appealing in part because they speak to real needs. They speak to felt needs that's, that boys and men have for information and for guidance. You know, information, as I've said, about sex, about relationships, mm-hmm. about how to pick someone up or how to flirt or how to, you know, how to build a relationship and also more general life guidance. And so I think for some boys and men, you know, an interest to Andrew Tate and other things comes in part out of sort of the general questions that many young people are asking. But I think it also represents specifically gender dynamics as well, that I think it can be particularly comforting for boys and young men to find communities and places where they're not held to account, where there is no criticism of the bad behaviour that some boys and men perpetrate. Mm -hmm. And instead, they're offered a kind of comforting victim identity or Mm. a kind of comforting... Um, kind of powerful identity, you know, a, a sense of they're special, they have power, they deserve more rights and so on. So I think there are things that are attractive or desirable about those spaces. And a third dynamic is to do with men's relations with other men, that we know from the research on masculinity that boys and men are influenced particularly by their sense of how they're perceived by their male peers. Mm -hmm. And I think in some of these online communities, there are strong kind of cultures of bonding, of affirmation, of male loyalty. Mm. And so these these can be quite, you know, attractive and in some ways supportive spaces. But supportive not necportive in finding healthy ways of being, supportive actually in ways that end up um, being more damaging for Mm. boys and men and the people around them. Yeah. I guess the part of this that I always just found endlessly confusing is that, you know, these boys would have potentially girlfriends, they'd have sisters, they'd have mothers, they'd have grandmothers, they'd have women in their lives that surely they care about to some degree and, you know, would want to see be happy and safe and okay. Like, I I just don't understand how you get to the point of dismissing the value and worth and, you know, um, dignity of, like, women half yeah, look, of humanity. It, it, is, it is extraordinary. And I, and I think you're absolutely right. The boys and men who have some kind of felt 
closeness to women and girls who, you know, who have sisters that they have good relationships with, who have um, girlfriends and female partners and so on, those boys and men, not not universally, but they're more likely than other boys and men to have some sense of empathy for girls and women's experience and less likely to see them as kind of second-class citizens or as mm. alien and duplicitous people that, you know, are, are really trying to rip men off. Right. But to the extent that boys and men hang out only with other boys and men in communities where those values are shared, where they, you know, learn the kind of language of misogyny and the kind of really intense and toxic stereotypes of women and girls that are part and parcel of many of these online communities, I think that can pull them away, where they literally withdraw to their computers, to their bedrooms, to their online spaces. And so their connections to and their ability to empathise with women and girls becomes less and less. We've mentioned Andrew Tate a few times in this episode now, and to be honest, I'm loath to speak about him and give him any more oxygen. But you can't really talk about these issues without mentioning the most current, well-known embodiment of toxic masculinity. And it's Tate's content that Hugh, the dad from WA, came across pretty quickly when he tried to get a sense of what his son was seeing online. And so did your son know that you were doing this little experiment to see, you know, where his search terms were leading to? No, no. And so when you found this, did you speak to him? Not not directly in as much as saying, I'm worried about your content. It was more dropping it into conversations to, to tease out of him what he's taking away from it. Um, and to a degree, when I, when I started talking about Tate and people along those lines, it was really quite encouraging to see the degree of cynicism that him and his mates have towards mm. that online environment. Okay. He's trying to get hits and he's trying to make money. So you just say the loudest, screechiest thing you can and you get traffic directed your way. Um, but whether he's saying it to appease me or whether it's his genuine belief, um, there is a very healthy cynicism amongst his group of friends at least towards the rantings of people like Tate. So how did you raise it in conversation? What was the nature of that conversation? So I would say, so what do you think of Andrew Tate or did you see that Tate video where he was talking about, you know, he's got 15 girlfriends and all the rest, uh, trying to understand whether or not he buys that hook, line and sinker, and I don't think he does. Then we would talk about how does that reflect what you see with the friends at school? Like is there, you know, one bloke with five girlfriends, is that the reality of life? And he's pretty quick to shoot that down and say that's not the case. Mm. Um, and he he sees my sister uh, has been with her husband for many, many years. Both the grandparents are still married. So he sees long-term stable relationships all around him. And so that he, I think he can filter out the, the, the cartoonish noise mm-hmm. and see the world through more sensible eyes, through his everyday eyes. You said when you sort of tested the waters about how he and his friends felt about Tate, they were sceptical of Tate. So they haven't internalised that kind of idea of gender relations and and how men should be. I don't think so, no. But he's certainly internalised some of the... um, I'll I'll give you an example. About uh, three weeks ago, he sent me through a video, I think it was of um, Beth Mooney, the cricketer, hitting three sixes in a row which he just sent to me as an impressive feat. He knows how hard it is to hit one. And so he thought it was very impressive that it was done at all. And he didn't see the gender as an issue in that. Mm-hmm. But subsequent to that, I think it was the next day we were having a conversation saying that women's cricket is good because they've, you know, they've adjusted the boundaries and they've adapted that to, to suit women. But they haven't done the same in the basketball. 
And so the women's basketball, according to him, was more boring because there aren't the slam dunks and there aren't the changes. Mm. And the reason that stuck out to me is he's not interested in basketball at all. He's, he's never played, really played basketball. He doesn't mm. care about basketball. But that's a very common thing that you see in these feeds of saying that, you know, the women's national soccer team can get beaten by 15-year-old boys. And the arguments are there, so that's why they don't get paid as much as the men because they're not as good as the men. Mm. <laughs> Certainly a debate don't want to get into, but it's that's the sort of thing that he internalises, that sort of almost cartoonish attempt to create a division. And do you, do you worry about what your daughter is seeing online as well? Interesting. I asked, I asked her a while about what, what comes through on your feed, and she doesn't see any anything uh, of what he sees. Wow. None at all. So I, she's never even heard of Andrew Tate, or she'd probably heard of him, but she didn't process him anyway, didn't, wasn't on the radar. And she gets feeds about plants and gardening <laughs> and good, light, fluffy things like that. Wow. And just none, none of it. Coming back to the term toxic masculinity, how do we tackle the problem being real, but the term being divisive? Like, how do we engage in these topics without sounding like we're attacking all men? Yeah, look, I, I certainly think we need energetic conversations in the first place about the harms of the man box or narrow, rigid norms of masculinity. Second, we have to weaken its cultural grip. And one of the ways to weaken the cultural grip of those narrow masculine norms is to point out, in fact, the gap between those norms and men's own ideals. If you ask boys or men themselves about what they themselves think, typically the far less supportive of traditional masculine ideals than they think everyone else is. They think everyone else is supportive, but in fact they overestimate other men's agreement with those views. So we have to turn up the volume on diversity among men and also change among men, the fact that these things do seem to be changing. We also have to challenge the sources of toxic masculinity. And I'm thinking of the shock jocks, the religious figures, the political leaders who actively preach toxic masculinity Third thing we have to do, of course, is offer some kind of alternative. Boys and men cannot be what they cannot see. We need to offer healthy, positive alternatives. And that means whether it's through school curricula or through social marketing campaigns or or through a conversation with your son, that we give boys and men a kind of concrete sense of what healthy, positive forms of masculinity look like. I suppose you lead by example is the thing. So I try and exhibit respectful behaviours at home. My wife and I have been together for nearly 30 years. I think he's he sees what I consider anyway to be healthy family relationships and I think that's hopefully going to be a far more powerful thing long term than any short term internet trend. And I guess if there's something you could actually say to him that would cut through, what would you want to say to your son? What do you want your son to know? Oh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I think it would be that he is valuable in and of himself. He is, uh, he is loved um, unconditionally and that uh, the world, whilst scary, um, is, is his for the taking, mm. to, do as he, to do as he wishes, to have some, have some joy. I think that's what sort of tends to be missing. I mean, we live in the, you know, a fantastically beautiful country. We've got everything we could possibly need and we're plugged into a device which is trying to make us miserable. <laughs> it, doesn't really, it doesn't really line up. And so that's, that's certainly something I would love to be able to put out there for just to em- embrace that happiness yeah. and look for a space to be happy. As a researcher, I do have some sense of hope because I can see signs of change. I can see that there are some signs of progress. Progress 
in the norms of masculinity that are influential among boys and men and some signs of progress in the broader structures of gender, the patterns of gender inequality that shape all our lives. However, I'm also uh, a realist and I can see that there's both progress and regress. And I suppose for me too, as someone committed to trying to build a better world with others, I, you know, I have to have a hope. I have to have some hope that that's possible. Um, yeah. That's it for All in the Mind this week. But we're not done with this topic. Next week, we're going to hear from one man who's made it his mission to establish healthy masculinity in boys and young men. His name is Hunter Johnson, and he's the founder of a nonprofit called The Man Cave. So we do a lot of work now around rites of passage, how you support a young person into a healthy transition into adulthood. And during that rite of passage, they'll let go of the, in our context, the boy behaviours. Boy behaviour being, I am centre of the universe. Life is about me. It's about conquest. It's about power. It's about control. It's about dominance. And then letting go of that and actually stepping into healthy man psychology, which is, I am a part of the universe. That's on next week's show big thank you to Hugh for sharing his family's experiences with us and to Professor Michael Flood from Queensland University of Technology. Thanks also to producer Rose Kerr and sound engineer Isabella Tropiano. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.